Next week, I'm going to start a lesson on transcending a religion of fear. When we learn the inner motivations that Robin spoke to us about last week, when we develop the skills of self-awareness and self-disclosure that I was just talking about that we're learning these five Winter Wednesdays, when we begin to see how our interior landscape dictates the terms of our days, our relationships and our marriages, our jobs and our decisions, our priorities, our anxieties, we begin to see that these unspoken, unarticulated, often unconscious motivations dictate how we live in the world. And when we begin to become more self-aware, we begin to see almost universally how profoundly fear dictates the terms of our lives. Fear is down there when we find it. But even when we think we're handling fear pretty well, even when it doesn't show up on the radar of our conscious awareness, so often what we have is compensating strategies in our lives that are derailing us on a regular basis that we don't realize are subconscious strategies for dealing with this deep undercurrent of fear in our lives. And so what we do is we develop all these strategies to keep it out of the realm of awareness, to keep it under the surface. It still affects us, but we just don't have to deal with it. And unfortunately, many times, religion devolves into being just one more of those compensating strategies. Rather than helping us unearth and expose and explore and challenge our fear, Religion often devolves into clever ways to help us sweep it under the carpet so that it doesn't have to be experienced, it doesn't have to be felt. We can do better. The whole point of religion is to do better. So that's what we're going to start talking about next week. Before we do that, I wanted to do something that the snow disrupted and plus the, the crazy way that this year began, I had sickness and a whole bunch of stuff going on. Didn't get to do something that I typically try to do at the beginning of every year and that is to reorient us to some of the core principles of our community's life. I want to do that today. I want to do it by reviewing some uh, of our community's history together. A lot of new folks have joined the community since we moved downtown, and even for those who have been around for some time, review of our core essential truths, this is important on a regular basis. So that's what I want to do. I want to tell some of our history together. When I came to plant NRCC, I was disillusioned with American Christianity. I came from one of the best churches in the nation. And underneath the surface of all the wonderful things that happened at that church, the deep inner transformation of the lives of the people who were part of that li uh, church life, the, part, the, the transformation that is so much part of our Christian heritage, that was not happening for a whole lot of the people that I knew in that church. So when I arrived in Raleigh, I arrived with a sense of disillusionment about the nature of the American church, which put me in a bit of a pickle because I realized that if I was going to do all the things that a church planting minister should do to plant a church, I would end up with a church like the one that I came from, only it wouldn't be as good because that was really a good church. And so I arrived with a deep sense of the problem of American Christianity, that we had somehow taken a wrong turn back there somewhere 
and weren't completely sure where that had been. But having taken that wrong turn, it was affecting us because what was happening is our Christian instincts were betraying us. Because even when we would say, hey, there's a problem in the church, we need to go work on it. And we would go to work on it. We would go to solve the problem. We would go to fix what was broken. It would have a bad outcome. We would set out to do good things, but a bad outcome would result uh, when we did. And so good people doing good Christian things was having bad outcomes. The problem wasn't that uh, we weren't doing good stuff. The problem was that the instincts that we brought to it kept betraying us. Our efforts kept creating bad outcomes. Now at the time, I wasn't the only one to see this. A lot of Christian people were seeing this was going on. And many of the folks that I was listening to at the time were blaming the big bad world out there for all of these problems. But that didn't really work in my mind because one of Jesus' most important themes is that goodness overcomes evil. That's the power of this message. So if our good is not overcoming evil, the problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. Jesus said it this way, if the light inside of you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, if the thing that you think you are doing is so good isn't good, you're going to cling on to that thing thinking it's good to your death. So maybe the things that we think we're doing that are so right and true and good aren't right and true and good. Now that's a tricky idea to hold on to because it goes against the way that our brains work. Instincts are instinctive. That's why challenging them or even examining them or even seeing them is so difficult. Blind spots are by definition blind, which is why it makes seeing them or examining them so demanding, so difficult. It's tough to see where we went wrong until, we're, until we see where we went wrong. So for the first 10 or 11 years of our community's life, we were asking a fundamental question. What does it mean to be Christian? Because everything that we thought we knew that it meant to be Christian had come, become suspect. Everything that we thought we knew, we weren't sure was right. Now, a little bit of that examination had to do with thought, a little bit of it had to do with ideas, a little bit had to do with doctrines, a little bit of it had to do with theology, but a whole lot of it had to do with the deep religious instincts that we carry around below the level of awareness, instincts that were feeding our toxic Christian behaviors. Because again, our instincts were betraying us and we were trying to find out why. So we asked that fundamental question, what does it mean to be Christian for 10 or for 11 years, trying to figure out where we went wrong and trying to see things differently, trying to rewire our thought habits. During that time, a very large percentage of our lessons, and you know that lessons last for several weeks, a very large percentage of our lessons began with the word rethinking. We were rethinking God, we were rethinking prayer, we were rethinking the Bible, we were rethinking sin, rethinking salvation, rethinking this whole Christian thing, rethinking our story. And toward the end of that year, I did a series of Wednesday lessons titled Rethinking Our Story. 
So I did this series of Wednesday nights, and after we had done that and grappled through it and argued about it and questioned that and got outside sources, did outside reading, asked other people for their input, as was, we went through this whole year, this whole process, rethinking our story. And when we had done that and then spent the year after it kind of grappling with the implications of that series of Wednesday <laughs> evenings, the next year I wrote a book and captured all of the work that we had done. And I did that because I knew that that was going to be a foundational part of our community, and I knew that that many of you would be joining us after we'd already done that work. And I would want to be able to hand to you something that says, hey, this is what we've been doing the last 12 years. So if you're coming to our community late, you're actually at a real advantage because you don't have to go through the struggle of seeing what you don't see. And you don't have to argue it out together, and you don't have to worry about verging on heresy. You don't even have to worry about being kicked out of the denomination because you are a heretic. (laughs) You don't have to lose people that you love because they think you are a heretic and they can't go to church with you anymore. You could skip all of that, and you could just read the book. (laughs) Now, it'll take you a while to read the book, but it's not going to take you 12 years, (laughs) all right? So... Now, these last several years since that, we've started on a second project. And that project is to rethink one last thing, and it's a big one. It's perhaps the most challenging because for many, this topic has been most hurtful. Right now, we are rethinking organized religion. And we're rethinking it because we have come to believe that we need organized religion. And that, with eyes wide open, that most religious pain has happened at the hands of organized religion. We are not unaware of that, and yet we've come to the conclusion that we're going to need it anyway. So, without organized religion, what ends up happening is that we travel the spiritual journey alone. And it turns out that's a whole lot better than stewing in a toxic form of organized religion so that when you get out of organized religion, it feels free at last, thank God Almighty. However, after a little bit of time out of the toxic stew, we begin to realize that we are walking the spiritual journey alone. And we begin to realize that the habits in our thoughts tend to repeat. We tend to think thoughts that we've thought before. There is something about being part of a community that bumps us out of the habitual patterns of spiritual practice and awakens us to something new and alive. So it's better to be out of organized religion than it is to be in a toxic stew form of of organized religion, but it's not as good as being part of a healthy, helpful, organized spiritual community. It's not as good as drawing from the accumulated wisdom of generations who have gone before us and making application of that in the context of support that we get from one another. So we're trying to rethink organized religion. Our first challenge was to rethink the story of God, the story of Jesus, the story of sin and salvation, because deeply embedded in our guts were these narratives that we had that had grown uh, encrusted and toxic, and they were informing our instincts, and our instincts were informing everything that we did. But now that we've rethought the narrative, now our next uh, um, mission is to rethink how do we do stuff. So, in religious circles, the word for healthy thinking Uh, is orthodoxy. It means literally right thinking. We contrast that word with another word for right practices. In other words, doing the right stuff. Thinking the right thoughts, doing the right stuff. 
once we begin to rethink organized religion or rethink how to do church, we begin to rethink the instincts and the practices of organized church life, we call that orthopraxis, healthy practice. So I wrote the book to help people catch up on orthodoxy, and now we are working on orthopraxis, how to have healthy, organized religious practice that strengthens and supports us for our lives going forward. Now, we've been doing this for a few years now, plan to continue until I'm no longer the primary leader of the church. This is our project for the next 10 years, and I hope to be able to have in place a healthy orthodoxy and a healthy orthopraxis to hand to our children and to our grandchildren when we pass this community on to the next generation. Today, I want to review some of the orthopraxis groundwork that we've done together And I want to revisit a cornerstone of our community life so that we make sure that we always keep the main thing, the main thing. There is a central theme that runs dead center through everything we do in our community. It is the framing why for all the things that we do. In past years, when I've reviewed this organizing center, I've framed it as a guide to the announcements here at NRCC. But it's more than that, really. Uh, You're going to, if you were to walk through the lobby uh, right now, as much as we can call that a lobby, if you were to walk through the hallway down there, you would see, if you caught it at the right moment, this uh, scrolling on the screen, one of the slides that says how we're organized at NRCC. It's this slide. And there you'll see the circle. We're organized around helping one another work the circle. We're organized around helping one another be steady in the ancient practices that transform our lives. So, troubled by the weakened state of American Christianity several years ago, we began to comb through our history, more than the history of American Christianity since 1898, which was a critical point. When you read the book, you'll understand the the critical point of what happened in 1898. We began to look at the broader scope of what Christianity meant outside of the influence of the Roman Empire. What Christianity meant in the Eastern Orthodox version or the Celtic version or the Coptic version or those places within the Roman tradition that separated from the empire and began to work on the contemplative practice, the monastic, the cloistered communities. We began to look at a swath of Christianity that was much larger than just the narrowed version that we inherited in our lifetimes. And we began to look for those times in history when we were at our best, when we were the most effective in bringing about the transformation in people's lives and the most effe- at our most effective in bringing about transformation in the world around us. And we looked for those practices that put us on a path of health and wholeness, that develop a deep inner capacity within us to not only be transformed, but then to become agents of bringing whole health and healness to the world around us. We looked for those times in history when we were able to love deeply because the very, we had become the very nature of love. We looked at those times when we were collectively becoming deeply virtuous because it had become, virtue had become our very nature. We were looking for those times in history when we were living the life of the fruit of the Spirit because we were accessing the indwelling divine. We look for those times in our tradition when we had not lost our way. You hear me say all the time, it is our way to lose our way. 
but it is also our way to find our way once we've lost it. And so we look for those times when we were finding our way, those times when we were at our best, those times when our religion was healthy, organized religion. And when we embarked on that quest, what we found was the circle. Now in our community, we spend more time than many churches do on announcements. I mean, goodness sakes, 168 hours in a week, we only get uh, an hour and a half to be together. And of those precious moments, we're going to spend 10 of them talking about stuff that's going on in the community. What is wrong with these people? But we do it because we believe that what happens in the announcements is as important as what happens when the guy stands up and gives the sermon or is as important as what happens when we worship because what you will find in the announcements is the circle. That's how we organize our community. So this year, the announcements are going to offer you a whole bunch of invitations and they will seem disparate. They could even seem unrelated to one another. Today, I want to give you a framework for assessing which invitations you might want to respond to, and you'll have an organizational framework for thinking about the spiritual life, the spiritual growth and journey that's set before us, and how any one of these invitations might be relevant to you in your life at this moment. So here's the underlying objective behind what we give our time to and our energy and our mind space and our dollars. Here's our prime directive. It's pretty simple, really. Our long-term objective is to become spiritual elders. All of the energies that we spend in our community life together go toward shaping and helping one another shape, go into building and helping one another build the heart set, the mindset of the spiritual elder. And hopefully that will happen for us before uh, we get too old. So it's a time-consuming process. It takes a while. When you were a child, you <clears throat> are alive because you were given to. Somebody gave you food and shelter. Someone gave you clothing. Someone gave you love. Someone gave you Christmas presents. Someone gave you a kiss on the knee when you skinned it. Someone gave to you. And so you are framed in your mindset at the tail end of your childhood to be made happy because of what you get. That's just the natural cycle of life. By the time we move forward to the place that we become elders, that has fundamentally changed. We are now made happy because of deeper truth. You hear what the old folks say, at least they did when I was young, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And when I was young, I thought, that's a bunch of hooey, I like to receive. And then you find out along the way that that is really true. The heart set of the elder is to say, I am more at peace when I am giving myself in service to something greater than me. I am more happy when I am giving myself away to the well-being of others. And that transition from the heart set of the adolescent to the heart set of the uh, elder is a significant part of defining the spiritual journey. And so when you live in an individualistic society, when you live in a consumerist society, the economy that rests upon the fact that you and I go out and get stuff to make us happy, that's a bit of a problem. It's a challenge. It's hard for us to make that transition from the mindset of the adolescent to the mindset of the elder. There's a whole lot of old people who are still thinking like adolescents. So they got old, but they didn't become elders. And our objective is to go gracefully through this process of becoming those elder mindsets. And it turns out that one of the primary tools to help us do that 
is working the circle. So our purpose as a community is not just to grow old together, though there is something very precious about that. But it's to help one another make this transition from the immature mind to the mature mind. What our ancient text called it was lives of righteousness. Lives of true self triumphing over the false self. Lives of selflessness triumphing over selfishness. Lives of divine love overriding our false self instincts. And the circle is our tradition's ancient orthopraxis. It's how we do organized religion in a way that helps us make that transition. The circle describes what our texts call paths of righteousness. And those ancient paths cluster into four categories. Communal practices, contemplative, learning, and serving practices. So let's think for a moment about the learning practices. This year and every year, you'll be invited to learn together. It's an important focus of every Sunday. It's an important focus of every Wednesday module. We learn together. On Meetup right now, there's a group uh, offering a book club on the book, A Time to Think. If you integrate that book into your life, it'll fundamentally change who you are. The second and fourth Sundays, Robin is offering uh, a module after church, kind of a Sunday school class approach that says, if you will embrace your personality's core vice, and if you bring loving kindness to bear on that, you will be able to emerge on the other side into your personality's core virtue. Matt and I are leading these five winter Wednesdays. Uh, the community care team and the conflict resolution team are sharing the, the experience they've gained over this last year. Jason is hoping to form a group of uh, exploring Bible literacy. Learning practices are foundational to becoming elders. So we invite one another in these announcements to shared learning and shared understanding. And when we learn, we get bumped out of our habit-driven brain ruts because that is what happens. We get, you know, as we've said so many times, we think the thoughts we've thought before. That is just the way our brains are wired. And when we do that, thank you, Grampy. When we do that, we, Paul's word was, we renew our minds. We come to a different way of thinking. We awaken to wisdom. We awaken to understanding. We learn a way to live. We learn a way to be human. We learn the way of the Spirit. We learn how the virtues underpin our healthy relationships. We learn to live in reality as reality is. And applying what we learn, something happens. Knowledge, when applied and integrated into our lives, becomes wisdom. Wisdom is a profound understanding of how to live in the deeper reality that is this life of ours. So you're going to hear this year invitations to the learning practices. I hope you'll read one of the books this year that's on our reading list. I hope you'll listen to a podcast. If, uh, if you're looking for a good podcast on being with Krista Tippett, that's a great one. Uh, I hope you'll do uh, what I said, listen to the collected speeches of Martin Luther King. By the way, On Being has a project that will be particularly relevant to us this year. It's called the Civil Conversations Project. I would encourage you to listen to that. But what we're doing is we're seeking truth. And truth-seeking is one of the ancient ways that we are transformed. It is part of our ancient orthopraxis. It's always been this way in spiritual community. And here, in ours, we are a learning community. And you will be invited to the learning practices sometime this year. You'll also be invited to participate in the communal practices. 
In fact, when we are learning together, uh, there's always a sub-objective, and that's to develop spiritual community while we're learning. The same thing's true when we're doing the serving practices together, developing spiritual community while we're serving. In any given year, you'll hear an invitation to join with other people and to get to know, get to know them. Our meetup groups right now are going to invite you to lunch, going to invite you to breakfast, going to invite you to a poker game. It was either last night or it's going to be next week. Uh, there's a potluck up there where they're going to watch a movie after we eat, after you eat, and then have a discussion together about the movie. It's kind of a relevant movie to where we are today. You'll be invited to life story groups uh, when we finish the five Wednesdays, and that'll be sometime in February. Our Wednesday modules always have a connect and get to know one another component. And each one of these invitations fits into a larger uh, objective. Ours is a hope <clears throat> to invite one another into spiritual friendship. That's kind of a specialized term from back when we still spoke Latin. Uh, it is a meaning, it means to have a kind of friendship together, that we share the spiritual journey together, we work the circle together. And that especially means the practices of self-awareness and self-disclosure that we've been talking so much about lately. You heard Robin say last week that when we do our Enneagram groups, we're practicing self-awareness and self-disclosure. That's what we're learning these five Winter Wednesdays. Our objective are to create spiritual friendships that are intentional and purposeful to help us move forward on the spiritual journey and help us develop the hearts of elders. Spiritual friendships become deeply intimate over time, but they don't start that way. They take time. Spiritual friendships take work. We have to be together over long periods. And in a society that's as individualized as ours is, in a society where so many hurts have accrued around our attempts at intimate relationship, it's not an easy thing to do. So many of the invitations that you're going to hear this year were, are designed to be baby steps. You'll hear invitations to low threat, low commitment communal practices. Life story groups are kind of like that. They're intentional, they're purposeful, but they're not too scary and they're not too demanding. Wednesday evening, same thing. Not too scary, not too demanding, but they help move us forward. Same thing true of most of our meetup events, same thing. So I hope you'll take up the invitation this year to get to know people well enough to start developing your own network of spiritual friendships. We're tapping into the ancient wisdom, the ancient orthopraxis, the way of doing church that is healthy and helpful and moves us toward the heart set of the elder. First, the learning practices. Second, the communal practices. And third, the contemplative practices. This year, you'll be invited to meditate about a hundred times. <laughs> you'll be invited to practice examine. You'll be invited to solitude and silence. If you've been part of NRCC for any length of time, you might have seen this diagram. Uh, it says that you and I, we have a false self. You and I, we have a true self. The false self is born of a series of core illusions that exist at the center of our unconscious minds that by filling up a lot of responses and reactions, fill up our thoughts, fill up our actions, fill up our behaviors, and become, for all practical purposes, a version of self. But they're not the version of self that is rooted in the divine center. It's the version of self that is 
rooted in these core illusions that we carry around. And so consequently, this can become a version of self, false though it is, that blocks out living from the deepest, truest part of who we are, the divine center, the true self, we call it. And so, of all of our ancient practices, it turns out that meditation is about the most fruitful for atrophying those core illusions at the center of the false self. Dissolve those core illusions as meditation does, as silence does, as examinative consciousness does. Dissolve those core illusions at the center of who we are, and the true self begins to radiate out through our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors, we become expressions of the true self rather than expressions of the false self. When Robin spoke last week about staying present, that was this. <clears throat> so you'll be invited to meditate this year. And you'll be invited to examine of consciousness this year. You'll be invited to practice solitude and silence this year. Most of our Wednesday modules are contemplative modules. Each Sunday morning we meditate in that back room at 10 o'clock. If you're unfamiliar with contemplative practice or with meditation, uh, you can go to our website under Get Involved. You'll see the page Contemplative Practice. And if you work your way through that page, you will be completely up to speed. You will know what we're talking about. Which leaves the fourth quadrant, <clears throat> the serving practices. This was our focus during the Amos lesson that we did just before Advent. As Christians, this is central to us. It describes what happens to us when we work the circle. We become people who better the earth. We become people who are organized for the common good. You've heard me use this expression from one of my favorite authors. The, the, the value of a religious tradition is measured by the benefit accrued by its non-adherence. In other words, we're not measured by how well we do for us. We're measured by how well we do for the world around us. What happens to the world around us if we're not here? That's our question. Tikkun olam. You hear me use that phrase a lot. Repairers of the earth. That's us. But it's also one of the core components of becoming elders. Because service to something bigger than ourselves changes us. It transforms us. So this year, you'll be invited to small opportunities. Temple Table is one of them. You can just, Kate, wave your hand. You can talk to Kate, and she'll put you on the schedule to deliver Meals on Wheels, first and third Sundays. You'll be invited to bring a meal or uh, uh, help set up for a win for Family Promise when we do the emergency housing this year. You'll be invited to support national leaders in Haiti. And I hope the steering group right now that is helping us process our post-election tumult will help us find larger ways, ways in which we can heal the breach in our society, redeem the harm and the damage that has been thrust out of the shadows that's always been going on but is now right there in front of us in our conscious awareness. One of the authors that I like to read uh, encourages us not to work so hard to guard organized religion as much as think of ourselves as being organized for the common good, organized for bettering the earth. That's actually what Jesus' term, the kingdom of God, meant. Organized for the common good. Transformed, that's what happens when we work the circle. 
capacitated, made able, that's what happens when we work the circle, and then set loose on a world that needs healing and restoration and kindness and goodness and justice, the service practices. Of the four, this is the one that has been weakest in our community life. And the reason is because it was pretty daunting to go through what we went through the first 10 years. It was pretty daunting to be rethinking the most basic instincts we have about religion. It was pretty daunting rethinking the most uh, basic assumptions that we have about how to do church. But as we've moved far enough along, it is time for this to become part of who we are. However, here's something that you need to know. If you're new to our community, there is the real possibility that you are showing up in kind of the same state that we were when we showed up. And that is, you've kind of been ground to powder by religion. <laughs> and that is, you've kind of been kicked around. You're not sure you believe any of this crap anymore. You're just kind of, this is your last stop before you give up totally on religion. And if you are there and you are totally deconstructing your religious life, good for you. And this is the time to just sit and relax. This is the time not to be engaged in service. But as we move forward, and as this, the, the circle does for us what it does, you will find, if you're paying attention to the interior voice, that there is an impetus. There is something inside. There is a force that rises within. And when it's time, and when you're ready, we want to create spaces together for serving something larger than ourselves. So the learning practices, the communal practices, the contemplative practices, and the serving practices. The circle that transforms us and the circle that heals the world that we live in. So take a deep breath in <clears throat> and I invite you to close your eyes and take a moment and reflect on your life and the circle. And to ask, is there a practice on the circle that stands out that as we did in the contemplative time this morning, something that bubbles up and grasps us, something that tugs our hearts, something that invites us in? Is there perhaps a quadrant that needs some attention for your own growth and for your own health? Is there something that right now, if you are listening to the interior voice, says this is for you, this is for now? Take a moment and reflect on that. So again, I hope that you will take up the invitations that are a fit for you and for your life this year. I hope that you'll extend invitations to others to share practices. If you do, you can use Meetup. You can be part of a group. You can offer a group. You need these practices in your life. I need these practices in our life. And when we are organized together, we organize around helping one another be steadfast in and faithful to these transformative practices. That's the point of being the spiritual community that we are. Ours is to help one another integrate these critical elements into our spiritual lives. And so, Spirit of God, may we become elders. May it be so in us, and may we have that to pass on to our children and to our grandchildren. 
Be it so in us, Lord, and be it so among us. In Jesus' name, amen.